You're about to hear my conversation with our chief economist, Todd Matino. We talk all about the economic environment around the world and stop at North America, China, Japan, and the Eurozone. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with our chief economist, Todd Matino. Todd, I'll jump right into it, uh, and I thought I'd have you back to have a discussion about central bank actions and possible outcomes. Uh, clearly, the central banks have decided to take inflation very seriously and their their mandate for price stability, and we've seen uh, almost uniform hiking uh, across the globe. And from what I understand, there's more or less consensus that, that will eventually take care of the inflation problem. But the real question is, what cost will that come at? Uh, and I, I'm here to solicit your opinion on on what you think about uh, what the cost is. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me back on the podcast. It's always great speaking with you. And uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's going to come at a cost. Uh, and central banks are increasingly indicating that they're willing to pay that cost. Um, but, you know, before we get into that, I, I actually think it's great to take a step back and think about the global macro landscape that these decisions that central banks are making, how it fits into that global landscape. And you know, it's been described as a uh, polycrisis, which is basically a series of local macro crises or, or severe shocks in all of the world's major economies that just happen to have occurred at the same time and that are coming together to put a lot of downward pressure on global growth, uh, along with upward pressure on uh, today's high inflation. And that's uh, that. Those are the kinds of shocks I think that we're all kind of familiar with. Like they range from the war in Ukraine, which has led to an energy supply and and natural gas price shock in Europe and the UK, uh, which is creating this fairly severe stagflationary risk over the next year for 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 that region. In China, we have uh, zero COVID restrictions and social distancing restrictions on top of a severe property price crash, uh, which is slowing growth dramatically in China and having spillover effects on the region. And then third, here in North America, the other major economy, we've had this just huge demand um, surge in demand that came out of ex post now looks like excessively loose policies during the pandemic. And because of that, we've had an, a breakout in inflation with a surge in interest rates. Um, and because of that, at, the, at its annual meetings last week, the International Monetary Fund talked about a third of countries um, facing a, an economic contraction uh, next year. So it's a very challenging backdrop for, for policymakers uh, in all countries, including here in Canada. Um, uh, and the odds of policy blunders are rising at the same time uh, as the space for maneuver is shrinking. And I think the UK has really given us a masterclass in the, uh, you know, both blunders and the potential side effects of, of making mistakes uh, in this really difficult time for the for global markets and the economy. Um, so I don't. To, so for the outlook and the cost, I think it might make sense if you agree to maybe go through some of the major economies and think about their outlook. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, you, you just referenced uh, the blunder uh, of the UK and the mini uh, budget that came out. Liz Trust has resigned effective today, uh, so we're recording on uh, October twentieth. 
Um, clearly, uh, market reaction to that budget, along with uh, with the overall ability to govern, led to that decision uh, for resignation. Let's start with Europe. The, the biggest head, headwind there is, uh, I think, the energy crisis. Uh, so what do you think uh, the prospects for Europe are? Yeah, absolutely. It's been really fascinating um, to watch what's happened in the UK. And I think, you know, it really was a lesson for the world in terms of, you know, when policymakers are thinking about um, the tools they have, they, they have to be working in a consistent way, uh, or this kind of instability in markets is, is going to be the side effect. But what's the outlook? And I think you're absolutely right. The the trigger for the instability, you know, going far enough back has been the war in Ukraine, which has created this energy supply uh, shock, which led to the spike in natural gas prices and energy prices in general for Europe and the UK. And, you know, this is this is a, a terrible kind of combination of shocks, because not only does higher energy prices lead directly to high inflation, but it also erodes the purchasing power of households and businesses and governments, which means right. uh, an economic contraction. So you have the worst of all worlds, this sort of stagflationary outlook of high prices and slowing economic activity. So, you know, the outlook is is pretty severe. And I think if we start with the Eurozone for a moment, one of the biggest problems they face is um, that the, we think of the Eurozone as one economy, but it's really a, a very fragmented economy. The different countries in the Eurozone are so different from one another that the risk facing one is different than another. So when I think of Germany, it has a lot of fiscal room for maneuver to borrow and help subsidize the, the costs of energy prices on households and businesses. And they've talked about a 200 billion euro package to do that. But then when you look elsewhere, you look at highly indebted Italy, for example, where its debt is pushing 150% of GDP right. uh, with an underlying budget deficit on top of that. A country like Italy is much more challenged with with this kind of environment to borrow in, in the market to subsidize energy costs for households and businesses. Um, and the IMF, for example, last week forecasting a contraction in Italy uh, next year, not surprisingly. So I think what we're going to see is for the Eurozone Central Bank, the ECB, to be in a very difficult spot where you know inflation in the Eurozone just printed just under 10% annualized uh, recently, it's a far cry from its just under 2% goal. It sure. needs to have much more restrictive policy, needs to get uh, inflation back down to target, and that's really going to have a severe impact on some countries like Italy versus, say, Germany. Um, Maybe just then to we, pick up on that point, Todd. Um, it strikes me as uh, quite a change from uh, the COVID time period where there is real unification in Europe uh, issuing uh, debt in order to try to uh, make mm -hmm. sure that populations were able to recover from the, the COVID crisis. What, what do you think the pressure on the Eurozone itself comes uh, for this sort of dichotomy of different economies. You also have a far right uh, government in Italy that's just been elected, adding a little bit more, uh, I guess, questions to governing styles <laughs> and that type of thing. Yeah, all of these dimensions are super important. I mean, we the, the Eurozone is inherently fragmented. Uh, we saw that during the debt crisis uh, in the early 2010s, right. uh, which was centered around Greece, but also Italy and the other peripheral re members. We could see a replay as the stronger members use their fiscal muscle to try to s smooth the effect of this crisis the, the best they can by borrowing through the government to try to subsidize energy costs for households and businesses, while the weaker members 
are less able to do so. And that would put even more severe pressure, not only on, the, on their economies, but as you're saying, politically, um, this is going to put the different members of the Eurozone potentially at conflict with one another, which of course would only enhance uh, Russia's objectives of fragmenting the Eurozone, uh, particularly as they seek to, to win the war in Ukraine. So this is a pretty challenging time, both economically and geopolitically. Uh, you're right, the, the new, uh, I think this is the farthest right government we've had in Italy since World War II. Um, it's naturally going to be some friction between them and uh, Brussels in, in the European Union and the other members of uh, like Germany and France. So I think we're set up for a very rocky, tumultuous time in the Eurozone over the next uh, 12 months. That's, that's great. Uh, maybe we'll move from the Eurozone. You mentioned China next, uh, the zero COVID policy, the housing uh, the, and the property um, uh, pressures that they face there. We're heading into the uh, the Congress for the Communist Party. Um, you know, do you expect that to bring any clarity or what's your general expectation out of China? Yeah, I think, you know, for China, of all the major economies in the world, China, in the short term, at least, has one of the more optimistic outlooks. Mm-hmm. And the reason is many of many of the constraints they faced are self-imposed. So for example, these restrictions on social distancing and lockdowns, which have severely hampered international travel and trade uh, and just domestic economic activity. Once those restrictions ease off, we should see in China what we saw in the rest of the world when we started easing these restrictions and uh, economic activity could start to rebound very sharply. Um, Even more so, China's got sort of impressive policy buffers, I'd call them, big foreign exchange reserves, a lot of administrative capacity for state-owned enterprises to get them to start investing and spending again. Um, So China in the short term could reignite growth fairly quickly when it makes a tilt uh, away from the sort of severe zero COVID policy. and its banking sector is also state-dominated, state-controlled, so it can help weather the property price bubbles as well. Um, so I think all of these things in the short term put China in a pretty good position. I'd be more concerned about China's medium-term to long-term outlook. I think that's where its challenges really start to become more, more constraining. Um, you know, you've got uh, aging populations, slowing workforce growth, and fairly low productivity because it's invested so much into capital investment in the last couple of decades that it it has too much capital per worker. And uh, so it it doesn't have as much need to keep investing in capital. So all of these things come together to create a pretty challenging long-term growth outlook. But the the, the positive note there is that the authorities uh, have shown themselves to be pretty capable at at managing their economy. So uh, it's a tough task to overcome things like population aging and low productivity. But if anyone's going to do it, I think they have the, the tools to do it. Great. Well, let's let's touch on the last um, region that you, you spoke about at the beginning, uh, which is North America. You characterize the inflation problems and the associated uh, central bank uh, at reaction as a demand surge uh, coming out of COVID. Um, you know, I, I think that we definitely saw that in in actual tangible goods during COVID and the end of in COVID, and we had supply chain issues, and that was sort of behind the thesis of the transitory uh, inflationary environment. I think that's been largely uh, put to bed as uh, not not the right way to think about it. How are you right. viewing uh, North America right now? Is service inflation something that you're worried about, and, and what do you think the path forward is for both central banks and, and the overall outlook for the economy? Yeah, I think you summed up the backdrop pretty well there. I mean, coming out 
during COVID, during the, the peak of COVID, 2020, 2021, uh, if I think about well, the U.S. and Canada, just enormous stimulus, uh, right. you know, large budget deficits combined with central banks buying the bonds that finance that government spending. Uh, all of it essential at the time, but the aftermath of that is now that we have a huge amount of liquidity in the system. We saw in the U.S. massive money supply growth. Um, those those things lead to inflation, and many of the problems. You're right. At the time, many people, many economists, policymakers saw. Uh, you know, we we called it team transitory. You know, inflation was going to be transitory, and and it's because uh, we had shortages in used cars or shortages in lumber or whatever. Sure. Now, in hindsight, we look at it and go, actually, these were just all you know, it's like whack-a-mole. You know, it's like there's so much strong demand. There's always going to be a shortage somewhere, and it just pops up in different sectors at different times. And I think that's why we're seeing this very persistent, sticky inflation problem, uh, which shows no signs of abating, to be quite honest. Like if we look at the latest U.S. core inflation, which strips out the volatile food and energy parts, you know, it it continues to show a lot of momentum. So the Fed has its its work cut out for it. And I think this is why they've been very clear that they intend to keep interest rates higher for longer. And markets are taking them at their word. They uh, are pricing in a higher so-called terminal rate, the peak rate, for the Fed's interest rate, it's close to 5% now in 2023. And staying high uh, through most of 2023 uh, as sort of the medicine that's needed to get that inflation back down to 2%. So I think, you know, mopping up all this extra liquidity that was generated in the last couple of years, that the, the way to do that is by tightening up financial conditions, raising interest rates. Um, but as we, you know, we started the, this chat, um, it's not just inflation versus growth and jobs anymore. It's also inflation against uh, versus financial instability. Right. Well, maybe expand on that, Todd. I mean, when you're when you're explaining, you you, you reference the massive amount of stimulus that was generated during COVID, uh, causing excess demand, and subsequently that rise in interest rate. I think the natural uh, question is, well, how much can the world afford as far as interest rates go? Um, everybody issued a lot of debt, a lot of governments, a lot of corporations, a lot of individuals uh, through the pandemic. Um, there must increase sensitivity to it. And what do you think the actual ability to afford uh, and, and prevent financial instability is? Yeah, it's it's differs by by country. Uh, here in Canada, for example, we have I guess you could call them the the twin sins of very high. In highly indebted household sector, you know, as mortgage debt in particular right. has really jumped, and at the same time we have very uh, we had very high home prices that are coming off sharply now. Uh, that's a bad mix. Uh, Canada's economy is not as diversified as the U.S., for example. It depends sure. heavily on housing, construction, and commodities. Uh, and on the housing side. Uh, that's likely to come off as, as house prices come down because of these higher interest rates. And if interest rates are set to be higher for longer, as we were talking about, because of inflation, right. then house prices are likely to come down, which will weigh on residential investment and construction. So I think Canada's economy is more interest rate sensitive than many, um, probably more so than the U.S. So how much can we afford in terms of interest rate hikes? I think when you look at uh, market pricing, the market's pricing um, 
you know, sort of the peak or terminal interest rate that the Bank of Canada sets uh, lower than where the Fed ends up. And I think it's partly due because uh, there should be a stronger interest rate response in our economy, which should help bring inflation down quicker. Um, So I think that's a big variable. Um, In the U.S., uh, their stimulus was probably the the strongest anywhere in the major economy, certainly stronger than Canada and stronger than in Europe. you know, well over 10% of their economy, 10% of GDP in different programs. Um, that's making this, the strength of demand now in the economy is that much stronger. It's going to take the Fed a lot of work to map to mop that up. And I think, the, you know, I think what can the U.S. afford? It comes down to um, the inflation rate. Like they, uh, I think the Fed has made it really clear that they are committed to bringing that back down to 2%. Um, so then it comes down to what could break, so to speak, you know, right. as they try to do that. And, you know, who would have guessed that it would have been UK pension plans that kind of <laughs> broke when, sure. when the UK started, you know, some of its um, silly fiscal policies in the last few weeks. Right. Um, no one would have guessed. So I think what breaks is up is is a little unclear. But you know, no one no one can see this with perfect foresight. But what the big worries, of course, are you know, some very leveraged pocket of, of the financial market, a hedge fund. Um, but it could be sovereigns as well. It could be, for example, yeah, sure. emerging markets that have issued a lot of U.S. dollar-based debt, and the U.S. dollar has strengthened massively in the last year or so. So that could put, you know, some emerging market country into a very difficult situation. None of the systemic emerging markets, the big emerging markets, look like they're in trouble. Right. But maybe a number of sort of medium or smaller ones together to, could in fact, they are already not quite a few of them in debt distress. So, yeah, so it could be more in the sovereign sector. Fair enough. Um, so we sort of have gone around the, the, the different uh, uh, jurisdictions. Uh, one one that you didn't talk about as uh, being part of the poly crisis, and maybe it's because <laughs> there is a lack of crisis there, uh, is, is Japan. Uh, and I've heard Japan frequently been sort of the cleanest, dirty shirt right now uh, when, when you take a look at the overall um uh, global economy. What's your view on Japan? Do you think that's a sustainable um, place to invest? Japan's always a fascinating one. They're so different as an economy uh, than the rest of the world. And, and we're seeing that play out in, in markets. You know, the yen has just crossed 150 uh, a level a year ago. Most people would, would have thought unimaginable. Right. Um, you know, their central bank governor said that the uh, the weak yen has actually been a good thing. Inflation has been a good thing for Japan. And that seems surprising for the rest of the world, I suppose, when we're battling inflation rates as high as 10% annualized in some places. But in Japan, they've been fighting deflation for, sure. for a couple of decades. So this energy price shock you know, and higher energy prices that have passed through into Japan, raising CPI inflation there, is seen as a, 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 an opportunity, a, almost a golden opportunity that th- hasn't come around in a long time for Japan to reset inflation expectations, to say, hey, we don't have a deflationary problem anymore. Navy people should stop building in such low wage gains uh, when they're negotiating uh, with their employers. We actually do have some underlying inflation now. And for them, you know, inflation's popping up just above 2%. This is a bit of a victory for the Bank of Japan, which also has a 2% inflation target, which has been missed right. for a very long time. So this is actually a very interesting opportunity in, a, in, a, in an odd way for the Bank of Japan to achieve its goal. Now, 
this is a not an ideal way to achieve it, obviously, because it's coming through higher energy prices, which erodes sure. people's purchasing power. Yeah. So the, I think the hope there is that people's long-term inflation expectations rise from these sort of mm. deflationary levels and it feeds through into sort of a healthy nominal growth rate for for wages and that can sustain maybe more of a consumption-led rebound over the medium term so this is this is very different as we were saying every major economy has a different kind of unique circumstance right now uh, for Japan, this might be an opportunity. The other interesting thing about Japan is their central bank governor is facing the end of his term right. uh, early next year, so the policy could suddenly change. And mm -hmm. that's important because you know, the, the yen has weakened very dramatically, but that's been in line with the fundamentals. J Japanese 10-year interest rates are still capped at around a quarter, a quarter percentage point, sure. whereas they're sky high in the rest of the world, and that's causing the yen to weaken as a result. If there's a change in policy under a new governor, we could suddenly see a very dramatic shift in the yen, and it could start to strengthen again, uh, especially if the interest rate cap is is raised by the Bank of Japan, which is I think is, you know, as the yen weakens, at some point I think there's going to be some capitulation. No one knows where that point is, but at some point the Bank of Japan might capitulate and say we've had enough of this good thing, and uh, we've had enough of this sort of energy-driven inflation, um, which is actually reducing our purchasing power, and they right. might start to reverse course a bit. Uh, well, Todd, that's great. I appreciate you spending the time to walk us around the globe and talk a, a little bit about uh, the reactions to central bank policy and also these sort of collection of crises that uh, the <laughs> global economy faces. So thank you very much for that. No, it's been a pleasure. Thanks again for having me on the podcast. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.